0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. A good evening that you have your Bible. And wouldn't mind turning it back to the prophets again and to the book of Joel. Okay, so... Daniel, Hosea, Joel. So somewhere a little past the middle of your Bible perhaps. Get to Ezekiel. He's a, a major landmark. And then, then you can go to... Oops, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn that one on. Hopefully that number four mic will work a little bit better. We'll get a little better pickup on the, on the live stream as well. Joel chapter 3, please, tonight. Joel chapter 3. And where are we? Well, we uh, left off last time, really sort of toward the beginning of the chapter, we looked at the opening verses of it and saw that God is going to promise us to bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem and then he's going to gather all the nations to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And uh, we uh, tried to avoid a little bit the, uh, the difficulty with the Valley of Jehoshaphat, not, not uh, in a sneaky way, but just to say you know, we're not sure where that is or how it's uh, associated with Jehoshaphat. But we can look at the etymology of the word and we can understand that probably in the future, People are going to look back on this event in the future. It would be like in the millennial kingdom. They're going to look back on this event and they're going to say that occurred at the valley of the Lord's judgment, Jeha, from Adonai, the Lord, or well, we call Adonai when we read the Hebrew text, but the word from which we get Jehovah. So the valley of Jehovah's, and then Shaphat, Jeha Shaphat. That's the word to judge. So the the valley of the Lord's judgment also called in verse 14 the valley of decision. The valley of decision. And uh, that kind of makes it uh, doubly ominous because uh, when the nations go there, a decision is going to be made. And that decision, uh, that's a serious decision. You know what I'm saying? We'll see about that. Uh, From some other portions of Scripture uh, as well. So, we, uh, we see this uh, the restoration, and we see the judgment. We see the subjects of the judgment are all nations, verse number 2. Okay, So, these are the Gentile nations. And they're in this valley of the Lord's decision, the valley of the Lord's judgment. And then we get the reason for the judgment starting in the second half of verse 2. He says, I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel. Okay? And then he says why. So he's judging on behalf of his people, Israel. It's really on behalf of God's righteousness. But he says, whom, speaking of Israel, they, the nations, have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. Just pause there for a moment. And think, it's it's so remarkable that the nations of the world are probably almost unanimous in their desire to split up the nation of Israel. Some of them want to get rid of it entirely. Think of the, the, the United Nations. If they could have their way, what do you think they would do with the nation of Israel? They'd take Jerusalem and chop it up into pieces, make it the capital city of one or two or three nations, they 'd have the, uh, the the Jewish section if there was one they 'd have the Arab section um, and they would uh, split up the territory, Gaza would be gone the West Bank would be gone the Golan Heights would be gone anything that anybody has ever wanted before would be gone and see so what I mean is they 're splitting up the they want to split up the nation for what logical reason do the, does the United Nations act so harshly against Israel? What 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 example what, what, or what reason I should say? There there is really none. I mean, they would say, well, they've oppressed their occupiers because they don't see Israel as having title to the land from thousands of years ago. Their their thinking is just focused on like the last oh couple hundred years maybe. And so the real reason however is that ethnic that, that Israel is the ethnic focal point of the work of God in this world and if you hate God you're going to hate whatever's associated with God okay if you can't hate God you're going to hate his children or you're going to hate his, his special favored nation or you're going to hate his uh um you know you're gonna you're gonna hate his church, okay? So it seems to me like very uh, very unfortunate, very strange that that's the case. But that root of Israel represents God to the world, and the sinner has an innate or natural rebellion against God. And so, therefore, although he might not understand why he hates Israel, he does so because he hates God. Ultimately, does that make sense? That, that attitude. The battle, we have to recognize, is not merely against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers of evil in high places. They influence the affairs of the world. So the nations are not helping the Jewish people. They are working against them. And the Lord says in the future when this judgment comes, It's going to be on account of my people whom they have scattered and divided up the land and cast lots for my people, given a boy as payment for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Uh, They just treated Israel like trash, or they will have, and they will be judged for that. Now, this judgment is going to be based on, ultimately, whether these nations are, are made up of saved individuals or not. Let me say it this a different way. The judgment, outcome of the judgment, the decision of the judgment will demonstrate if those people are truly saved. Let let me say it yet another way. If you're a truly saved person or a nation that has predominantly saved people, how are you going to treat Israel? Not like trash. You might not give them a blank check to do whatever they want, but you're going to be favorable toward them. Something like what our current... Uh, situation is uh, right now and so um, you're going to demonstrate your salvation by how you treat Israel individually and then of course nationally the outcome will be clear so God's calling all these people together and this is exact same judgment as Matthew 25 31 to 46 that we call the sheep and the goats judgment. Are you familiar with it? Right hand, left hand. Sheep, goats. Sheep, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Goats, depart, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Like Matthew chapter 7 says, the people that call out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? You know They don't recognize that they mistreated Jesus by mistreating his kinsmen according to the flesh. And that is the sad story. It, and he says... And as much as you did it or did not do it to the least of these brothers or Israelites, of, then you did it to me or didn't do it to me. So, that's the situation. The history of the nations of the world indicate that they cast lots for the Jewish people. They engaged in human trafficking. That's how we call it today. Taking people from their homeland, selling them off. Um, And and, and all of that, uh, participating in prostitution, the buying and selling of souls and slavery, just just examples of what the nations have done to Israel. Now, um, let's look at verse 4. Indeed, these are just a few of the nations. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia, or Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily I will return your retaliation upon your own head. So the question here is a little bit confusing perhaps if you read it you wonder what what does it mean what do you have to do with me? Let me try to explain what the sense of the text is. The question indicates that Tyre and Sidon and Philistia had a mindset of vengeance. We are going to get back at God. In their prior evil actions against Israel, they were in effect attacking God. And God asked them if He had done anything against them for which they were retaliating. He's basically saying, are you mistreating my people because I have done something wrong against you? Are you getting back at me through them? And then you have to stop and think, okay, in what way is it that God has wronged them? What way is it that God has wronged Tyre and Sidon? And, and I'm sure they have some kind of twisted logic in their mind. These these nations that go against Israel, like some reasoning that they think. Uh, but it's it's unsaved, darkened reasoning. You know, They think badly about the nation of Israel. And they're saying, well, uh, in effect, we're retaliating against God. You remember when we read in... Uh, Actually, we're not done with the section in Second Kings when Sennacherib comes up against Israel, and he's lying his way there, saying, "Look, God's told me to come and destroy this place." He's saying, "You've taken down all the all the high places of your God. Um, You know, I'm going to take care of you people." And and, then, thus, he's going to show, supposedly at least, that the gods of the Assyrians are more powerful than the God of Israel. And so God is is kind of reflecting that idea here. He's saying, look, why are you going to retaliate against Me? If you do that, I don't want to necessarily say it like this, but it's almost like, you know, go ahead. Go ahead and do that and you'll see what happens. If you do retaliate against Me, then I will swiftly and speedily do the same to you. It will be quick and it will be devastating. Although, we don't see the word devastating here, but that's the idea. Now, we don't know exactly when the events occurred that God is speaking of, but you can see them in verse 5. You've taken my silver and gold. You carried into your temples my prized possessions. So, at some point in the history or even in the future, God's saying, you guys are stealing stuff from my temple, stealing stuff from the Israeli government, uh, you're going to take uh, my prized possessions out of the temple, carry them to your own temples. Remember the Babylonians did that? They took all that stuff from Israel in 605 B.C. and, and, and around those times and they took stuff back to their temples and put it in with their gods. Or remember the Philistines? Uh, took the ark, put it in the temple of what god? Remember the god? Dagon. Dagon fell down, broke all broken pieces. The idol, because of that strange happenings there. But anyway, they did all this there, or will do all this stuff to the nation of Israel. And look at verse six: and the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, these are the ones God's going to regather. You sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from your borders, from their borders. Sorry. Can you imagine being sold? Now, why to the Greeks? You joked about the Greeks tonight with me. <laughs> uh, this is no joke, but I, it, I I believe that you have a situation where the uh, the Greeks were like traders. They were like the international. They made the international market. Okay, they were the market makers, and so you sell your stuff to them, and then they distribute it. To whoever was the highest bidder, okay. So they were the they were the middleman, and so that's what happened. The even souls of people, bodies of people, were sold to the Greeks as slaves, and they were removed from the, the land of Israel, which is their homeland. And that's a that's a terrible affront, uh, terrible injustice for a Jewish person to be removed from their homeland. Um, those folks have a much how can I say? They place a much higher value on land and inheritance than do we. You know, We kind of think, well, I'll just call up the realtor and I'll sell this place and buy this other place. And it doesn't really matter to us. But when it's your ancestral homeland, it has a little bit more of an attachment uh, to it. So God says, I'm going to uh, raise them, verse 7, out of the place to which you have sold them. And, listen, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Okay, so you dig a pit to let somebody fall into it, I'm going to make you fall into it. You, you uh, whack somebody over the head, I'm going to whack you over the head. In, in essence, what he's saying is it's going to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a stripe for a stripe, burn for burn, blow for blow. Exactly what you have given, you will get. Now what was the penalty for... Taking people and selling them off of their land into slavery? Was it jail? Was it jail time? No. Nope. It was death. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Deuteronomy. remember we read, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brothers of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. Okay. So, chattel slavery, slave dealers were justly to be punished. That's how serious God takes stealing somebody's life, livelihood, freedom, separating them from their land and their family. That is serious. God hates it. And so we have, well, the same thing in the New Testament man stealing. Uh, Exodus 21 has the same. Deuteronomy 24 7, we read. So the reason that these people did this was because they were greedy. What did they want? They want the land. They want the land. They steal the people off the land, sell them off, take, and try to take over the territory for themselves. Land has value. And they want it for themselves. They don't want to purchase it or come buy it uh, honestly. And so God's going to punish them for it. God's going to bring back the people of Israel. Then He's going to do to the nearby nations as they uh, thought to do to Israel uh and then he will sell their like he'll sell their children as slaves and all of that just to, to show them kind of what it's like. Uh I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I'll just be uh, forthright about that, but uh I'll mention Deuteronomy nineteen, eighteen. And judges will make a careful inspection and indeed if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother so shall you put away the evil from among you. That context is obviously a little bit different, the judgment context and false witnesses, but it's still this idea of retaliation for what you thought to do to the others. So I'm just going to leave it as an open issue as far as exactly how that works out and what the timing of it is. But I wanted to share with you one more thought on this little subsection before we get to the kind of battle and judgment of the nations and that is in Mark chapter seven. If you would turn there, please. Somebody might object to all of this and say, "Well, what's wrong with Tyre and Sidon?" Mark chapter seven is the passage that I referred you to. What is wrong with Tyre and Sidon and, and Philistia? And you know, does God is God writing them off forever now, and they're just not going to? Uh, amount to anything or be anything or they're totally lost and they're unable to be redeemed. It was curious to me that Mark 7, 24-37 mentions this place again. So keep in mind now, in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia are condemned for their mistreatment of the Jewish people. It says of Jesus, from there, verses. this is Mark 7.24, from there He arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And He entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but, it says, He could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Him and she came and fell at His feet. The, the woman was a Greek There's the Greeks again. A Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. He's speaking of the Jews. But for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And so he's saying, you're on the outside of this equation. I've been sent to minister now to the people of Israel. And notice her faith as she answers. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. We probably read this and think, boy, that's a a very discriminatory kind of statement that the Lord is making. We have to recognize that the Lord has no sin and He could not have a discriminatory kind of evil thought towards a person, but He can say, that my ministry, my mission is to the Jewish people right now, not to the Gentile outsiders. But she says, yes, okay, I agree with that, Lord, but even us outsiders could benefit from some of the crumbs. And then he said to her, verse 29, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So here's a a Tyre and Sidon resident, a Greek Syrophoenician in that land. And uh, the Lord ministered to her. God's not shut off Tyre and Sidon entirely. Uh, God did not abandon them, did He? Proof right here. Uh, By the way, Tyre and Sidon are mentioned more in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. I don't know if you ever would have guessed that but I looked up the phrase Tyre or verses that have Tyre and Sidon in them and there're more times by count in the New Testament than the Old so now we go on again departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon so you know he was he went there verse 24 now he's leaving on his way out he comes through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the sea of Galilee and they ministered you know, he ministered to a man who was deaf and could not speak properly and so that he healed him as well. So the place Tyre and Sidon plays a little role in the Gospel accounts uh, this way as well. So God has not abandoned them. This judgment does not mean that no person of Tyre, no resident or citizen of Sidon or no Philistine could ever be saved. doesn't mean that. It means that in the end time this nation is going to be judged for their evil conduct against the people of Israel. Now, let's look at the next few verses here tonight. Chapter 3, verse 9 of Joel. If you will, go back there. Chapter 3, verse 9 of Joel. And it says, now this is maybe a surprise, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Okay, you're going to stand up against God. This is at the end of the tribulation. This is kind of the Armageddon time. You're going to stand up against God, then strap on your sword because this means war. Okay, Uh, This is not the normal kind of proclamation that you would think of in the Bible. It's not a gospel proclamation. This is not good news. This is bad news. The prophet is to proclaim war among the nations. The men of war are called... Look at verse 9. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Okay, you're going to oppose God. Let's have your best shot, God says. The implements of war are to be created. Notice that. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Find anything you can Take your metal to the blacksmith and turn it into a war tool. This is the exact opposite of what it was supposed to be or what it will be in the millennial kingdom. Look at Micah 4.3, for example. Just a few pages forward in your Bible. You have uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. After Amos, you have Obadiah and then you have Jonah and Micah. Okay, in Micah chapter 4, verse 3, it says, He shall judge between many peoples, this is the Messiah, the Lord's reign in Zion, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, you with me? So they took their. Military instruments and turn them into farming instruments that 's what's going to happen in the millennium that's why there will be no department of Defense in the millennial period. okay there won't be like these humongous standing armies and all that stuff because there will be peace, and Jesus will enforce that peace with a rod of iron along with his people. But before that happens, the Lord tells them, okay, if you're going to stand up an army against me, you better you know you better bolster up your, uh, your forces here. You better take your farming instruments and turn them into military instruments. Look, let the weak say I am strong. Assemble all the nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come to the, up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So God kind of is gathering them together and to this valley of decision. They're assembled before God and the sentence has already been stated. We've already looked at it. They're in big time trouble. And now look at verse 13. The sentence is carried out. Okay, so this, you have to kind of mix. Put, not mix, put it all together in your mind. God's gonna bring these people, but they're gonna come thinking they're gonna, they're set up for war. And they're gonna, they're gonna win. They're gonna, you know, beat back all their adversaries and, and take over the control of things. But in fact, they're coming for a final judgment. And they will then see, look at verse 13, the sickle. The wine press. You know, those are always associated with judgment in the Bible. Um, What's the grim reaper? What's his tool? Isn't it a sickle? That's how he's pictured. Yeah, he's he's reaping souls from the earth. Well, you have a similar kind of thing. Uh, For example... Don't turn there just now. I'll I'll do the I'll do the finger exercises in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, the Bible says in verse number 29, "But when the grain ripens, this is the parable of the seed. The kingdom of God is like a seed scattered and it grows. When the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle." Because the harvest has come. Or Revelation 14. Revelation 14.14 It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle and the earth, in the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then he talks about the uh, grapes of wrath. The angel thrust his sickle, there's another sickle. And gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. Talks about the blood coming out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles. So the Lord harvesting his own elect out. You have the angel participating and harvesting these who are fit for uh, treading down and destruction. And so we have the sickle and the wine press. Always symbols of judgment. The wickedness of the nations is great and they deserve that judgment. Back to Joel chapter 3. Look at the repetitive words in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There's a vast number of souls, my friends, who are going to be at this judgment. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. This is exactly what we read in Matthew 24. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, My holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. So the nations are gathered and they are judged, they're defeated, they're destroyed, and Israel dwells in safety. And so now God can bless His people. And He does that in verses 18 through 21. It says, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Talk about idyllic conditions in terms of agriculture, water supply, fruitfulness. The house of the Lord will provide even a fountain of water and water the area north of the Dead Sea. That's the valley of Acacias, north of the Dead Sea. Um, think about how different that will be than today. Today. Oh, what a pleasant, peaceful time that will be. Rest. The nations will not be learning war against each other, and all will be at rest. Except there will be some evidences, some scars of the prior sinful condition of the world. Egypt and Edom will be a desolate wilderness because of the violence they've done against the people of Judah. For they shed innocent blood in their land. Who knows how many lands around the world will be in that desolate condition. But at least these two will. It makes me think of a passage that's very uh, difficult in Isaiah chapter 66. It says, And they shall go forth, I take this to be during, after the tribulation in, into the millennium. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That is, there will be, if you will, a museum piece of rebellion against God. Okay? So that people will be able to see remember what the lord the lord's language about this worm does not die fire is not quenched he's talking about the valley of Hinnom, the eternally burning trash pile outside of jerusalem which is his picture of hell that there will be a place like that on the earth for people to look at and see the abhorrence of sin against god and rebellion and that will be their reminder there is a Useful place for museums, isn't there? Even if the museum contains things that are unpleasant, like a Holocaust museum, so that humanity would not forget the evils that were done. That's not for the faint of heart. It's not for you to take your little kids to that. This is an adult matter. Hide your kids' eyes from that, but teach them about what happened so they know, and then when they're of age, show them the very evils that were done. I'm not in in favor of of, uh, hiding the poor little snowflakes from all the the evil that has happened in the world. They need to hear what has gone on so that they can be realistic about it. And so uh, that will be the case. Joel, there will be desolation in Egypt and Edom because of their violence against the people of Judah. But, verse 20 says, Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, how is that going to happen? There's only one way that guilt can be acquitted. You know the answer to that question. How can that happen? Only through the blood of Christ. It's not explicitly stated here, but it must be the case That God has in mind the forgiveness of Christ upon the Jewish people who have come to faith in Him. This will free up God to live among the people. It says, For the Lord dwells in Zion. He can't dwell in the midst of an unclean and ungodly people. You remember in the book of Ezekiel, He left the nation of Israel. He left them because they were so idolatrous. He said, I'm out of here. I can't take it anymore. Well, He's going to come back. Because He cannot dwell in the midst of a wicked people, He must come back to a people who have been redeemed and uh, are able to be called holy and be before Him and serve Him. So God must have in mind the forgiveness provided to them through Christ and that is what allows Him to acquit them of the guilt of their own bloodshed. So that brings us to the end of the book of Amos. Very simply, uh, perhaps a bit understated, but it is the end of this prophecy as it talks about the disasters that will befall Israel and the restoration that will, will come to them and the disasters that will befall the nations. But in the middle, all of that motivates the people of Israel to one attitude, repentance. You're going to face judgment. You need to repent. God will restore you. Repent. Judgment is coming. Restoration follows. Okay? Um, that is what the prophets all are. They're all the same. What the what the prophets are doing, like Joel, is calling the people back to covenant faithfulness. Go back to to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Do what God said, and you will be blessed. Repent of your current sins, turn back to those ways, and God will restore you. Okay, did you get that? Go back, repent. Judgment is coming. God will restore. Those are the. That's the prophets. Over and over and over again. You'll read that in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, over Obadi- all of them. They all talk about that same sort of thing. A couple of them, yes, Obadiah and Nahum have to do with Edom and, and uh, Nineveh, uh, other nations. But basically, that's the message of the prophets. Turn from sin. Turn to God. He will restore. He will bless. He will be gracious. And, and he will cease his activity of judgment against you. So, that's Joel. Okay? I hope that helps you understand him a little bit better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask You to watch over our understanding of this book. Take it and, and, and help us to see the severity of sin and the future judgment that is coming for it. I pray that our, of, of, of all people, we would be ones who would take that message of the need for repentance to our neighbors and to our family this is no joke. This is not pretend. This is real life. And there are no do-overs. When life is past, it's done. And so, Lord, I pray that You would help us to repent and call others to repent and thus find the blessing of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank You for Him and His way of salvation, the only way. Thank You for these dear ones here tonight. and The ones who were here earlier but had to leave, uh, the young people upstairs, we ask that you will bless them as well. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We will bid you all good night online and here in person. And uh, may the Lord watch over you and keep you. Amen.